All right, let's uh, take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 7. If you are visiting this morning, we are seven chapters now into this letter that we've been walking through for quite a while. And we are ready this morning to begin looking at the second half of this chapter beginning in about verses 13 and 14 and running through the end of the chapter. And we will be in these verses three Sundays, I think, roughly. Um, They're worth our attention, especially as we are very soon going to begin chapter 8, which is the most wonderful aspect of this entire letter, in my opinion, and perhaps of the whole Bible. And it is referred to as the, sometimes as the Mount Everest of the Scripture. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful passage. But these verses, verses 13 through the end of uh, chapter 7, really lay a foundation for it. As I thought about this week, almost like a runway, uh, when we're, we're in the plane on a runway and we're going down Romans 7, but we're not meant to stay in Romans 7. We need to take off now and go into Romans 8. And I'm hoping that our three sermons or so in these verses will help us prepare to do that. Remember hearing the experience of a pastor friend of mine who was eventually asked to leave his post at a church that he was preaching to and pastoring at, and they were upset with his preaching. And the deacons in that church, it has a structure of deacons that were essentially serving as elders, and they call them in the room, and they're having these discussions with him. And one of the deacons said to him, you preach to us like we're sinners. (laughs) So he never reached his tenure there, obviously, and went on to pastor another church. But friends, we are all still sinners. We are justified sinners. There's no doubt about that. By the time we get to Romans chapter 7 and verse 13, we know we're justified people. We are born again. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we are We have the very real hope of eternal glory. It's guaranteed to us. But we are still in the process of what we've been dealing with, what we've been talking about, sanctification, this process that isn't completed until our glorification. When we are raised from the dead, and glorified and made fully and finally like Jesus Christ. And until then, we have to acknowledge and be a confessional community that we fail. These verses that I'm about to read have been very helpful to Christians in the past, throughout church history, who have seen Paul here describing himself as a Christian struggling with sin. They've been helpful to these believers. Maybe these verses have been helpful to you in realizing that you're not alone in your struggle against sin. 
Now, I want to read these verses, and I'll begin in verse 13. We'll read through the end of the chapter, but I want you to ask yourself a question before I, as I'm reading these. Do these verses resonate with you? Have you had similar feelings within you in your Christian experience similar to what Paul is describing here? That's very important to ask because I believe that Paul is speaking as a born-again Christian man here wrestling with and struggling against internal sin. And I actually think that resonating with these verses shows or demonstrates that you are a true Christian. In other words, if there's never been a conflict within you over your indwelling sin, then I, I fear that maybe you have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and that you have not been born again, that His Spirit is not in you. So let's begin reading verse 13 as we're all asking ourselves, can we identify with what he's saying here? Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As always, friends, let's just pause and pray and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, these are Your words brought about by Your Spirit. 
These are spiritual words. And so we need your Spirit in us, shining light on this text, shining light in our hearts and in our minds to understand what Paul is saying here and to have a spiritual comprehension of this passage. And we need your Spirit's help and then applying it to ourselves and living it out in our lives. So I pray for that now. Please help me to preach and teach because we believe that preaching and teaching is not natural gifting or talent, but that it is your gifting given in the moments in which it's happening, enabling a man to preach with conviction and power and authority and love and with effect. So will you please do that for me now, for your glory and the good of your people in the Great Commission. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What I want to do this week is view these verses kind of as a whole, and I just want to make a few observations about this passage that hopefully then will help us as we look at the particulars in the upcoming services. So I'm just going to give you a few things about this passage that I think will help, and I think it'll put it in the context of what has gone before it in Romans 7, and then what's going to come after it in Romans chapter 8. First of all, know this, or notice this. This is a passage about Paul's present testimony and Paul's present struggle with sin and the law. Do you remember what I said? Romans 7 is primarily about the law, right? I mean, the the word law is used over 20 times in these verses. It's a primary theme. And if you'll notice above verse 1 of chapter 7, the heading that our translators in the English Standard Version anyway gave us, it says, released from the law. But then now, above verse 7, look at the heading above verse 7, the law and sin... That, that is that those translators believe this was the main theme, beginning at verse 7 of Paul's teaching here, running all the way till chapter 8 when you see the next heading, which is life in the Spirit, capital S, which is the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul then is still dealing with the law, And he's revealing the problem with the law and the good news that we've been released from the law because of our sin. Sin poses the problem with the law. In verses 7 then through 12 or verse 13 roughly, Paul was giving his past experience with the law and sin. By that, remember we looked at this, his pre-Jesus days in dealing with the law and coming to the conclusion that the law itself was condemning him. 
He wasn't able to bear fruit for God just trying to keep the law in the flesh, so to speak. He's trying to do that, but he couldn't do that. It was just exposing more and more of his sinfulness and his inability to keep it. Remember the one sin that really got Paul, the one aspect of the law, the one command, thou shalt not covet. That one command hammered away at Paul in his conscience because he said he found that what it did was actually evoke within him more covetousness. Remember that? And so in those verses about the law in sin, verses 7 through 13, he was talking about the fact that, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. That is, I I thought I was keeping it. I, I thought I was doing well. The law had promised life to those who could keep it, and here I'm going, and I'm trying to keep it. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, and specifically what God used for him was this commandment of thou shalt not covet, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me because the wages of sin is death. The breaking of the law is death. And Paul is saying, the law showed me how sinful I was and how I could not keep it. And therefore, I knew that it was producing death. Sin, seizing an opportunity, verse 11, through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. But then in verse 12, remember, he made it clear again. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Just reminding us, right? The law is good, but we are not. And then in verse 13, he asks that question, did that which is good then, the law, is that what brought death to you? Similar to the question from verse 7, is the law sin then, Paul? No, the law is not sin, and it's not really the law that brought death to me. It was sin producing death in me through what is good for this purpose. Now catch this in verse 13. It's this purpose in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, the law showed me how bad sin was and how bad I was, how sinful I was. It's one of the purposes of the law. As a matter of fact, let's just pause here before we go on to the next verses and I'll have you turn back to chapter 5 In verse 20, Paul, in leading up to chapter 5, verse 20, remember, was talking about the one act of Adam in the garden, that one sin against the one particular law, which was don't eat of this tree, right? God gave him one one command, really, one law. And as long as he obeyed that, he could live. If he disobeyed it, he died, because that's how it works. You break God's law, it brings death. Well, we all know the story, Adam sins. Breaks the law, death comes in, that's what he's showing. Death, sin, spread to all mankind because all sinned. But there was a time period between Adam and Moses in which God was dealing with people and even saving people, like Noah as an example. But there was no written law for them, no code really, no written code as Paul is referring to it in these verses in chapter uh, 7. 
And he says this in chapter 5, verse 20. Listen, now the law came in. Okay, from Adam to Moses, no specific law given to human beings. But Moses comes along and God now gives to that people, Israel, the law. Written on tablets of stone, bringing it to them. They get the Mosaic law now. Why did God do that? I mean, God was able, obviously, to govern people and the nations. He was able to even save people. He was able to work through people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was able to do all of those things without any written code. Why did the law come in? What was its primary purpose? 613-ish laws and commands in what we call the Torah, Genesis 2, uh, uh, Le- uh, Leviticus, uh, or Deuteronomy rather, and you have all of these. What is the purpose of this then? Now, why did God do it? Paul explains right here. The law came in to increase the trespass. He's saying the same thing that Paul's saying back in Romans 7, to show what sin is and then to show us what? How bad we are. The law was never designed to be a means of gaining your right standing before God, in other words. It was always designed by God to increase sin. To show your sinful nature, as Paul said back in chapter 7, that actually is stirred up by being told not to do something and actually wants to do it. To actually increase the trespass. And did did sin increase throughout the time of the law? I mean, you read through Israel, did they get better by the law? Were they better off by it? No, it increased dramatically, exponentially, until God had to export them out of the land, you see. Oh, it served the purpose for which God sent it. His Word always serves the purpose for which He sent it. The law accomplished its purpose. It increased the trespass. In other words, God gave the law to prove a point and to show the need that we have, friends, not of law or of more law. You know what we need? Increased God's grace is super increasing, is overabounding through the grace so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why John said in the first chapter of his gospel, he said, the law came through Moses. Listen now, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, you see. This is why some theologians call the age in which we live The age of grace. Not as though there wasn't grace in the Old Testament times or while there was that age of law, but now this understanding of the fullness of the grace of God for sinners is made more readily seen and visible for us. We see through law how bad we are, so bad in fact that God knew the only way anyone could be saved is if he did everything 
for the sinner to be saved. In other words, He Himself sent His Son in order to save us from our sins. And then when we come to faith in Him, we receive His Spirit who, friends, quite frankly, keeps us saved. Paul said it. He seals us until the day of redemption so that we would always remember our salvation, friends, is always of grace. You never graduate from grace. It isn't like pre-Jesus you need grace. Now that you're saved, you can have law or rules or works or whatever it is. Maybe a little grace sprinkled in here and there. Friends, our salvation from cover to cover, beginning to end, is all of God's grace. The law shows us our need of it. And friends, that's important because what Paul is showing is, not only did I need God's grace because I'm a law-breaking sinner, not only did I need God's grace previous to being saved, but now look back at chapter 7 again. In verse 14, beginning in verse 14, he's showing that I still am going to be saved by grace because still within me is this indwelling sin that at times I break God's law, you see. So, in other words, if, if there were any hypothetical uh, position that said that we were saved initially by grace, but after that we need to now keep the law in order to make ourselves more righteous and, and stay right with God, wouldn't Paul be admitting then in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, that he's sunk? Is he admitting that he can keep the law perfectly? Or is the law one of those things that you can just kind of, you know, it's like horseshoes and hand grenades, close is good enough, right? He still can't keep the law perfectly. It's still going to be all of God's grace and God's working, you see, even after he's saved. You notice in verse 14 and 15, there's actually a transition here from Paul's past experience with the law in his own sin to his present experience with the law in his own sin. We know it because of the changes in the verb tenses. In those previous verses in Romans 7, verses 7 through 13, he's talking in the past, isn't he? I was this way, I was alive once, this happened, law comes in, sin changed. And then all of a sudden in verse 14 it changes, right? I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but the very thing I do I hate. He keeps on going and going and going. He's describing this present tense experience as though, listen, we still have sin, and at times the law still poses a problem here. The law cannot justify us, and the law cannot sanctify us. That's the point. Now, God uses the law in both justifying you and sanctifying you. Oh, it's used. It's used in showing you're a sinner and you need to be justified. It's used in lighting the path and showing you what is good and right and true. It's used in, even after you've been saved and convicting your sins, you're looking back to Jesus. God uses the law. We've already covered that. It's good. We're not throwing it out. But the law does not have the power. The law does not have the ability to justify you or to sanctify you. That is why Romans chapter 8 exists, by the way. We're not going to it yet. Romans chapter 8 shows you the way now is life in the Spirit. 
right? The Holy Spirit of God. We're going to walk by the Spirit. We're going to put the death of deeds of the body by the Spirit. We're going to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Just keep in mind, God doesn't leave us in the condition of Romans 7. That's not supposed to be our everyday experience. Not fully. We get to Romans 8. There's life in the Spirit, but He's showing us now and paving that understanding that, friends, did you know this, that even though you are saved, you still have sin within you, that you have been saved from the penalty of sin, Romans 1 through 5, that's justification. And as Graham reminded us this morning and pronounced over every believer in this room, you are forgiven of all your sins past and present and future. No sin, no charge can ever be held against God's elect, Paul says in Romans 8, because it is God who justifies. They can bring charges that might even be true, but they can't stick because you've been justified. You're forgiven of all your sins. The penalty's been cared for. In Romans chapter 6, we learned that the power of sin was broken through the cross, right? That you were a slave to sin, But now in Christ, you've been raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. And he he says, you were slaves of sin, not anymore. The power of sin has been broken. But there's one aspect of salvation, friends, that has not happened for us yet. And that is we still have the presence of sin within us. Very clear in these passages. We have not been saved from the presence of sin within us. And friends, you need to know that. There are things that we're going to go through as we walk through particularly these verses. There's real danger in knowing that even when you want to do right, evil lies close at hand. (laughs) That within you, you have indwelling sin that still poses a problem. You need to be aware of that. We haven't been saved from the presence of sin yet. You know, there's something about salvation that we could say it like this. We could look at salvation from the perspective of time and say, we have been saved. I could say, I remember when I was saved X number of years ago. I was saved. I believed in Jesus. But there's also the aspect that we could say, I am being saved right now and being transformed and conformed. I'm being changed and kept by the Spirit, and I'm being saved, and I will be saved. When I'm finally raised from the dead and glorified like Christ and made like Him in every way, in perfection and glory, then my salvation, so to speak, is complete, you see. But until then... We are on this journey, on this pilgrimage of salvation. And friends, one thing that we should be longing for is the day when God fully and finally relieves us of the very presence of sin. When I began reading Romans 7 here, I asked you to ask yourself, does this resonate with me? To ask yourself, do I struggle with sin? 
Friends, do you long to be rid of it? Does it bother you? Do you wish that you were fully and finally delivered from indwelling sin? If you feel that way, wonderful. If you don't, that's problematic. You see, friends, in a passage like this, if you... If it doesn't resonate with you at all, like you don't care about your indwelling sin and you've kind of made peace with it and it's not a problem to you and you don't think about it much, because that's really problematic. This is a mark of a true believer. He's looking forward, friends, to glory because in glory... He's not going to sin anymore because he knows by experience now that he wants to do what's right, but he can't figure out how to do it completely. And when he doesn't feel it, it doesn't do it. It makes him feel bad. It makes him feel terrible. Are you longing for the time when you're going to be free from sin's presence within you? I show you something. Look at this in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 22 in Romans chapter 8. He says this, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Who are the people now groaning in this day and age are those who have the Spirit now. And they're in this Romans 7 condition where there's something that's happened in their heart and the Spirit dwells within them, and yet they know it's not as it should be. And in the context of Romans 7, they know it's not as it should be because they still have sin and it bothers them, you see. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What does he mean by that? Well, he means this, the redemption of our bodies, you see. That there's coming a day when your body will be redeemed and reunited with your soul and then you will be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Verse 29, as He is, you will be in purity and holiness. Now for those of you who, Romans 7, you realize that you wish you could be perfect and you hate it when you sin. Listen to that good news. There's coming a day when you will be perfect. Imagine living as a human being, because you are a human being, you're Destiny is not to be some spiritual being floating around out there somewhere. It's to have a body and to live as a human being on the earth, the new heaven and the new earth. And you're going to live in this glory. And imagine this, you're never going to fall into sin again. I want you to think about your besetting sins. I often ask you to do that. Think about it this morning. Oh, that thing that if you could just 
snap your finger and it would be gone forever and you'd never feel its pull again or you'd never be surprised by that sin again. And Think about how many times you've been like, I'm going to really fight this sin. I'm going to really put this sin, sin to death and I'm going to memorize Scripture and I'm going to get people to help me on this. I'm going to do it. And, and sure enough, out of nowhere, out of the blue, you fail. And you think about those moments afterwards, how horrible you feel. That's Romans 7, by the way. Romans 7, uh, that's a lament. It's, it's words of lament that you can use when that happens. So let me just throw that as an aside. But know this, when you're groaning under your sin and the presence of it, know this, friends, there's coming a day your hope your destiny is that you're going to be in a glorified body with God. You're never going to feel that again. Now, see, in the heart of true believers, that resonates. And that's something they're looking forward to. That's something they want, you see. God has worked in us in such a way that we... Love the good and hate the evil, and yet even though we love the good and hate the evil, we still do the evil sometimes, but there's coming a day that will never happen again. That's our hope. I love it when we sing, Come Thou Fount, and that line that says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen. Listen to this. How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace. (laughs) How did I get here with all my sin and with all my inability to perfectly keep God's law? What has brought me to this wonderful place, you'll say? Well, it's the sovereign grace of God to me, in me, for me, brought me here. Which... Makes us long then, right? Like Romans 8. Oh, come, my Lord, no longer tarry. You hear how the author does that right away. He's thinking of that day. He's thinking of that glory. He's thinking of the moment of seeing Jesus not in sinful flesh, which could ruin it. I mean, how many spiritual experiences have you had? Moments of joy, moments of wonderfulness and peace that just get ruined by sin, a sinful thought. A sinful feeling, a sinful distraction. Seasons in your life when you've felt as though you're really walking in the Spirit and you're loving your devotional time and church is awesome and serving is awesome and all of a sudden you come into the awareness of your sin or sins that beset you and that gets ruined, friends. Picture the day when free from that, you are, you're going to be praising God for His grace to you. Does not that make you sing, Then come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring Thy promises to pass. For I know Thy power will keep me till I'm home with Thee at last. Friends, you know, we are still sinners We cannot and will not keep the law of God perfectly, but listen, God has us covered, doesn't He, by His grace. If you have that longing in your heart to be glorified with Christ and to be with Him forever, to be free from sin, know this as a fact. It's not a maybe or a hope that will happen. This will happen. That day is coming now. So you hold on. 
You keep walking this pilgrimage. You keep looking to Jesus Christ. You keep preaching the gospel to yourself, knowing that one day you will never, friends, feel Romans 7 again. It's a temporary necessity to have a chapter like Romans 7 in here. It's only temporary. It's only for this time. It's not for eternity. Eternity is coming. We'll end there and we'll pick up where we left off next time. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for, even though commanding us to be holy, we know you are displeased with sin. Yet we thank you for the breathing room, so to speak, of the gospel. The gospel doesn't smother us with law. It just doesn't. The gospel is the good news of your perfect righteous son who is our spotless righteousness. Praise you for that. Praise you that by your grace you have made provision for every aspect of our salvation and all three of these are Our past, our present and future aspects of salvation are covered by you through your Son and by your Spirit. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, amen.